Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hi, this is Ron Friedman, author of Decoding Greatness. And if you want to build valuable relationships, you should be listening to Build Your Network with my good friends, Travis Trappel and Eric Sporzynski. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. Ron, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, before we get into what you're working on right now, I want to go back to early childhood because I like to get to know what made you who you are today. So tell me a little bit about middle school, Ron. Like what was oh, man. life We're like? man, lose a lot of listeners. <laughs> you want to you go into it? Okay, Let's do it. Let's do it. Middle school, Ron. So I, um, I was born in well, before you, I have got to give you a little context, I was born in Israel and I came when I was seven years old to uh, the U.S. And I was put in a Shiva high school, which for those who don't know, it's a uh, very religious Jewish school. My parents were not religious, but it was important for them to be, uh, for me to be around other Jewish people. And I was an outsider for just about my entire childhood because the values that I was, the folks I was around uh, had and the ones that I had were very different. And in, a, in, in some strange way, I think that made me better because I have thicker skin in terms of um, 
I'm, I'm okay with being criticized and, uh, and, and has allowed me to learn the value of taking risks because it's something, you know, I feel like so many of us are taught that we need to fit in and then it becomes harder for us to do the things necessary to be a successful entrepreneur or to, to uh, reach out to people who perhaps were uncomfortable getting a no from. But I, I feel like that childhood experience, although uncomfortable at the time, probably made me a little bit more prone to taking risks. Uh, did you feel that pressure from like family to fit in being first generation American? Like, was it just fall in line, fit in? Or was it something you just kind of subliminally picked up just from being around people? You know, my daughter is 14 right now and it is remarkable. Like this is just something that happens to you as your brain is developing. I, and there's actually research showing that the part of your brain that is concerned with social relationships is a little bit ahead of your decision making, the part of your brain responsible for decision making. And so you'll do things that are just downright stupid in order to fit in because that's the part of your brain that is so sensitive to reward. And so I think that's just natural part of growing up is wanting to fit in. And I think it's some it's that that kind of that that switch flips somewhere uh, in early high school. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully yeah, it does right, exactly. Flips, but but um, yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. So so what was kind of, I mean, you standing out, you're, you're kind of an odd duck in, in the group, you know, but what was kind of the, the goal for you as far as like moving forward? Did you, did you have a path laid out in your mind for like, this is who I want to be? Like, Absolutely. Like now it's kind yeah. of out of place, but this is who I want to be kind of moving forward. So I, so I grew up in uh, the early 1990s. And so my heroes were Morrissey, Robert Smith from The Cure, and uh, a little bit of the Pet Shop Boys. And so I was um, really enamored with music. And mm. in fact, this is, this is a good segue to the book because part of what I think that gets people to assume that the, their initial like childhood dream is not for them is that they think they either just don't have the talent or they don't feel like, um, you know, to the extent that people know that practice is a big part of being successful, they don't feel like they don't have enough time to achieve what it is they need to achieve. And I probably gave up on that dream a little bit too soon, but it did lead me to the to some of the ideas that eventually became decoding greatness. Yeah, yeah, you you definitely brushed on it. And one of the core things that you talk about is that the two things we always hit for people to focus on is talent and practice. Like if you're talented at something, pursue it or practice, put in the ten thousand hours kind of kind of mindset. But you've kind of picked up a third way, which is the premise for your entire book. So can you talk a little bit about? what it means when you say decoding greatness. What, is that, what does that mean for somebody? Yeah, so what that means is finding an extraordinary example, whether it be someone who's an amazing networker or a book that you've written that has really resonated with you, or maybe a podcast that you really like and learning what is different about that particular example that you can apply to creating something entirely new. So just to take a step back, the premise for the book is that there are two major stories we've all heard about success. But as you mentioned, the first story is talent, and the second story is practice. But the third approach, which is the focus of decoding greatness, is reverse engineering. And that just means finding amazing examples, working backwards to figure out how they were created, and then identifying strategies that you can apply to develop your own original work. Right. Yeah. And, and that's something that really resonates. And I, I, I want to circle back because there's a piece of this that I, I really want to unpack, but one of my favorite quotes is from Quentin Tarantino, who, if anybody has decoded greatness and made his whole career building on things that have come before, it's him. And one of my favorite quotes from him is, great artists steal. They don't do homages. 
And that's always stuck with me. And it's, it kept coming to mind as I listened to you on podcast episodes, as I was reading things from you, watching videos from you, I felt that kind of vibe coming through is like taking something that someone else has done, figuring out what made it resonate with you, what made it work, and then applying those principles within your own life. Yeah. I will say though, that I'm a little uncomfortable with the word steal, because Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, I, I think if you do steal, and you just copy somebody else's formula, I think you're gonna fall short. Hmm. So just to give you an example, lots of people have tried to copy Malcolm Gladwell's formula. And lots of people have not succeeded in doing that because it's a unique combination of Gladwell's background, his ability to find the perfect word, his storytelling style. And so there are a lot of books that you come across, they're like, oh, this feels like that other book, but it's just not as good. And so in my case, there are certainly elements that I look to Gladwell for his expertise, but then I also make sure that I evolve that formula. Right. So it, one of the things you might notice when you read my work as opposed to Gladwell's is that Gladwell will take his sweet time developing a story and it's because he wants you to develop an emotional connection to a particular character and he is optimizing for emotion. He wants you to feel bad. Uh, so negative emotion in particular, you'll notice, is, is quite prominent in his work. Not all of his work, but a lot of it. For me, the storytelling is interesting. I'm more interested, though, in, in the particular insights and how they might be applicable in everyday life. And so that, like, if Gladwell is a three on that, I'm like a nine mm-hmm. on applicability. And also, you'll notice that my stories are very brief. I kind of, like, get to the punchline right away because that's the way I read. So if I'm reading a 30-page story, I'm going to scan after a little while to get to the meat of the story. And I don't have the patience. And I embrace that and make that part of my formula. So that's an example of taking something that you find useful, but discarding the parts you don't and evolving it by combining with other elements, some of which are just inherent to the way that you, your, your own in, uh, individual preferences. Yeah, it sounds like evolution is kind of the key to it. It's mm-hmm. taking it and making it your own, which which is why I like Tarantino, is that he takes something that resonates with him, maybe a, from a horrible movie, but there's a scene, you know, and, and that's why I stopped watching a lot of uh, movies that Tarantino recommends because like he'll like a five second piece that totally totally influenced him and then he'll expand on it and put something amazing around it it's like a scrapbook of the best things but put with his own unique unique style and flavor to it exactly and what I think is important to keep in mind is that even if you're not someone who's directing films or writing songs or writing books there are still elements of this approach that are applicable to everyday life so For example, if you're someone who's looking to network or you're someone who's looking to build your clientele, finding an email that someone sent to you that either led you to want to open or led you to want to click contains insights about what it is that has resonated there that you might be able to apply to another email or to Mm. another marketing campaign of some kind. So it's really about a mindset of curiosity and continuing to ask, what is it that makes this unique and how do I apply this to my work? Absolutely. I've, I am curious, and this is kind of what I wanted to unpack a little bit earlier is, you know, the, this idea of greatness can be for everybody. Like there is a way to find what works for you, apply it and, and grow in a certain way. But also you may really like music. You may really like musicians. You may really like sports. So when do you draw the line between, you know, okay, taking the time to try to pursue a path versus like, hey, I'm just not naturally gifted in this area. Like, where's the balance there between saying like, hey, it's not worth me investing the time to develop this, you know, even if I'm not naturally gifted or I I can't do it through, you know, maybe I can put in the time and try to get better at it. Like, when do you draw the line between, hey, I just need to step away from this, not pour more time into it 
and then lean into my core competencies? Great question. And I think that a lot of, a lot of it depends on your person, your person, your, your specific situation, where you are in life, how much of a runway you have financially. I can tell you though, that I think the vast majority of people underestimate what they can do and err on the side of comfort. And my advice is to use one of the approaches that I talk about in the book, which is how successful businesses thrive by taking a lot of risks and it's by diversifying and really developing portfolio careers. So it used to be that you had to have one job and if you dabbled in something on the weekend, you were unfocused. Today, if you're not experimenting with different revenue streams, then you are really endangering yourself. And I think this is, you know, this may be a little bit off topic, but I think that a lot of folks assume that if they work for an employer, that gives them more stability than if they went off on their own. And they are lying to themselves because the only thing, I mean, if, if the, well, as soon as the company does poorly, what does the, how does the company respond? It's by letting people go. And so you are trading, I think, the illusion of comfort for actual stability. And so I, I genuinely believe that people need to take more risks. And be intelligent about them in terms of like not perfecting the, your approach, but just taking lots of swings and seeing what is generating a positive response for you. And, you know, this is how I transitioned from, you know, my, my story is that I was a professor, but then I decided to leave academics because when, as soon as I got in the classroom, I realized that the job of an academic is to teach the same thing over and over again. And the reason I got into education is because I enjoyed learning new things. Hmm. So I left academics and then became a pollster. So my job was to measure public opinion, figure out what it is that people believe, and then apply psychological principles to advise companies on how they can shift those opinions. And after working for, uh, poll, for a variety of poll companies and also uh, marketing agencies, that's when I decided to take uh, a real risk by writing my first book, The Best Place to Work. And I had no plan beyond like, I hope this book comes out and does well and we'll see what happens. I got a little bit of an advance, which was enough for me to sit in my basement for a year and write a book, but uh, not necessarily living well at all, but it was enough to feel like, okay, somebody's gonna invest in me, therefore there might be something here and I better take this risk. And the way that I justify it to myself was thinking about how my kids would view this time in my life when I was older. So Mm. was it better that dad stuck with his job and we were comfortable, or was it better that dad did something courageous? He didn't work out, but he tried. Yeah, that is such a, a fascinating approach. And I have a four-year-old and, um, you know, Travis has a has two kids, you know, and we talk about that a lot because, I mean, both of us are in situations where they, they, don't, they don't understand yet what we do. Like my daughter knows I come up and lock the door and I'm working. <laughs> but outside of that, it's a very blurry kind of nebulous concept of like, what does dad do? But I think about that all the time is like, you know, if we want to teach our kids, follow your dreams, take the risk, do this, like how many of us grew up hearing that from people who were locked into a 40 hour a week job or 40 hour a week job plus overtime, plus a second job, you know, trying to chase that stability, you know, which is as we've seen in 2020, anything could happen. <laughs> anything could happen that, that makes you get kicked out of that office or, or lose that paycheck. And I'll give you a question that was helpful for me to determine whether or not you're in the right position is to ask yourself, if your kid had your job, would you be proud of them? Or would you mm. feel like they were selling themselves short? 
And if the answer to that is the latter, then it's time for you to take some rests. Wow. That's a really interesting question. And uh, when to, it's, it's a hard question too, because there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of layers to that. Definitely. And you're, but you know what your worst case scenario is you go get, you go back to a job like you currently have. So it's not like you're going to be homeless. Like, right. That's the way to think about it is like, what's the worst that could happen is maybe you're a little bit uncomfortable financially for a little while. But it, what, what about if it does happen? It does work out. Yeah. What's the upside? And the upside is limitless. So yeah, th- there's a, I don't know if you've seen it. There's a, there's a Jim Carrey clip that goes around. He was giving a commencement address and he's talking about his dad and he says, my dad could have been a great comedian, but he chose stability and he chose to, to work this job. And, you know, he did that for several years and then was laid off. And he said, what I learned is you can, and he said it way better than I'm going to say it, but he said, you can have it not work out, not chasing your dream, mm-hmm. or you can have it not work out, chasing your dream. So why don't you try chasing your dream? And it was I like a really cool, well. <laughs> it was a really cool, uh, it was a really cool statement. I definitely encourage people to listen to that clip because he delivers it as only a, a Jim Carrey could, <laughs> but it, it's a really powerful thought. And, and like you hit it, this is a good mindset piece is you hit this really hard is that the worst thing that could happen is you have to go get a job. <laughs> like that's the worst. And, and that was a big shift for me because I was scared to take the plunge out of the nine to five world. I was like, the worst case scenario is I go back and ask for my job. And also that's a lot of motivation to make it work <laughs> because I don't want to go Bye. back in and go, hey, can you take me back? But it, it is like the worst case scenario is that you lose it and you go get a job and you build it back up and you try again. And we're now recording this in June of 2021. And given where the economy is right now, there's no better time to do this because, you know, there's there, the, the job market is flush with jobs. And worst case scenario, five months from now, you just go back to what you were doing. That's your worst case is staying where you are. 100%. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed, if you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, 
You need Indeed. So you, you touched a little bit about doing the polling with the companies. And it's funny because in, in a way, these two books on the surface look very different. Like one's very focused on corporate environment. One's focused on personality. But the personal desires and things that we have all play into what makes a good corporate environment. So like, really, there's not that big of a bridge between the two concepts that you're talking about. Like, yeah. they feel really like sister projects in a way. Did you feel that as you were as you were writing? And did that, did your last book really inform how you addressed all these topics in the new book? Yeah. So let me just say a little bit more about the first book, because I, I don't know how many people knew about that, because it really was kind of specific to or organizations. And so the book was called The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. And that book came out of my experience of going from academics to working in the real world. So it's kind of like the psychologist meets the office. And so uh, it was all about the huge gap between what it is that we taught in the world of academia about how people can be more motivated and creative and productive and how most organizations actually operate. And there's a massive gap between the two. And just to give you an example, like the employee of the month, right? Like, I don't know if you had that where you worked, mm -hmm. but I did in my marketing agency, we had an employee of the month award. And the person who got that got to park at the spot that was nearest to the door. It was ridiculous. And what you find when you look at the research on this is that when you have an employee of the month award, what it does is it creates an environment where people are competitive with each other because they want to win that award. And so you're undermining the way that the actual working environment by instituting that type of that type of award. So anyway, that's an example of one of the many follies of organizations. And so that book took over a thousand academic studies and translated into plain English so that regardless if you're a CEO or just someone starting out, you had access to the latest science. But there was something missing in that book. And what was missing is that even within the best organizations, there's uh, a, a wide variety of performance levels. Some people are top performers, others are not. This book was about what are top performers doing differently. And so I started off by looking at a lot of biographies of folks like Steve Jobs and, and Malcolm Gladwell, I looked into a little bit, Judd Apatow, people like that. And what I found was that they were not just relying on practice and talent, they were also reverse engineering. And then the second half of the book, the first half of the book shows you how you can reverse engineer and also shows you how it's being done in a wide variety of um, industries like cooking and photography and the car, car industry and entrepreneurs, how everyone is like borrowing elements of winning formulas and then evolving them, shows you how you can do it. And uh, the second half of the book is about bridging the gap between your vision and your ability, meaning that once you've gotten good at decoding greatness and and figuring out what the formula is for applying um, a winning uh, approach, you're still not going to necessarily be good at it because even though you have a vision of what you're trying to accomplish, your execution will be lacking. And so um, at least at the very beginning until you get good. And so the second half of the book is all about the science of skill building and how you can learn new skills faster. Yeah. Let's start, let's start with that first point of actually choosing who you want to decode. Like how did, how do I pick the person that I want to, if you call it copy work, but like who, who do I, how do I pick the person that I want to, you know, follow their steps? Like how do, who do I want to unpack? So first and foremost, like how should someone identify? Cause it may be someone sitting there in an industry going like, there's so many people I could follow so many potential, you know, trails to take. How do you first identify someone that you want to, you know, figure out how they did it? I think it's less about the person and more about the work. Hmm. So when you come across an example of something that is impactful to you, and again, we talked about emails, it could also be a presentation deck, it could be 
a website. It's all about, at first, just collecting. So mm-hmm. not just sitting there and just saying, hey, I'm going to work backwards and figure this out. Just, just have a mindset of curiosity and say, hey, when I come across something that is impactful, I'm going to earmark it somehow, either through a bookmark or putting on a Google Doc or Evernote, however, whatever is easiest for you. You want to have a mechanism to capture that so that when it's time for you to create your email website presentation deck, you can go and visit those examples and start unpacking what it is that makes them unique. And I talk about the the first step is become a collector. The second step is to analyze. And how you analyze what it is that's working in those examples you've collected is by playing spot the difference, which is the game we all played as kids where you have two images side by side. One's a little bit different than the other. And your job is to identify the discrepancies. That's what you want to do here by comparing the extraordinary, the the, uh, items in your collection against the ordinary and say, hey, what's different about this example? what it is that makes successful works unique. So this is, um, I think, more than a one-time sort of execution. This is something you should be doing all the time because the more more you have in your collection, the more you can draw from anytime that you need to create something that is new by not just figuring out what's working in those examples, but also finding different elements that you might want to combine into something completely novel. No, absolutely. And and that's something I used to, I used to do a lot of design work. And that's something I actually started doing when I first started designing mm-hmm. is I had an Evernote notebook and it was literally just design inspiration. So it was literally, and, and someone taught me this way before I entered, they said, keep track of all this stuff, become a, basically become a collector. So I would be like, this menu has a cool font or this image. Yes. And then that switched to like Pinterest. I had a private board, like graphic design. Exactly. Inspiration. Another and, great way of doing it. It's a tool that you can use and it's so easy to do this. And it's something that just is just, uh, sorry to interrupt, but just one, one oh, point yeah. that I want to make, which is that don't view this as work. This is something that you should be doing all the time. Pocket is a great resource too, for mm-hmm. saving articles that you come across that you want to later study. Uh, and it's just a, a feature that you can add to your Safari uh, browser on your phone and just pocket articles all the time. And so the more collecting you do, which is a two second task, makes creativity so much easier to achieve later on because you're able to just visit your collection. And I talk about it as like um, visiting a museum where you have you draw your inspiration. It sounds like you knew that before yeah. reading this book, which is great. Yeah, it's it's something that you do naturally. And now like coaching people with podcasting, it's like you notice things, you get these ideas in the moment and you find yourself going like, oh, that's really cool. Like from design level, like you always go like, at least if you're a designer, like I'll go through and be like, I love that font, you know, or I love this layout, or I love the way that they added this texture. Like the the step where it is the work, but it's not really work is just take it and like memorialize that. Like, let me take a picture of it. Let me add it to an Evernote folder. It doesn't have to be sorted or color coded, but when I would go in and design, I go to that board or I go into that Evernote folder, look through and see like what stands out to me. Like I'm working on this project. Let me see if there's anything in the last month I've looked at that's really inspired me in some way. And find it may literally, there's been pieces I've saved because of the texture or the color or mm-hmm. two colors side by side that I liked. It doesn't look anything like their design, but there's something there that really resonated with me in the moment. But it's doing yes. that that extra step, like you said, using pocket, using some tool to kind of pull it in and, and remember later when you actually need it. Yes, absolutely. And I can tell you that as a writer, I do this all the time. So mm-hmm. I have, I'm reading articles because that's all of my work is science-based. So 
I am, have a collection of articles that I may want to draw from later on. And I'm going through, so this is kind of like part of my filter is I'll go through all the academic journals, pull out the articles that have some value, and I'll categorize them into one of the different domains in which I might want to write about. Then I can tell you, I also collect words. So words that I read in a book that get me to like pay attention, I'll circle them. And then after finishing the book, I'll transfer that into a Google doc of powerful words. So whatever industry you're in, there's an opportunity for you to become a collector and having that collection to draw from, from will make it so much easier for you later on, because you're not just facing a blank page, at the very least you have some prompts to get you thinking. Right. That's awesome. And it kind of takes care of the next question I wanted to ask, which is how do you move this into execution, which it really is just going through that collection, finding what worked and then assembling your actual action plan. Is there, is there anything else you would add to that as far as like actually executing? Because there's a lot of people that know the academic side or they've read a lot of books, but then they execute something and it does not come out or it, cool. it just doesn't translate. First, let me talk about the, the analysis because I think there are there's more that you can do. So if you really want to dig deep into some, some a particular person's style or approach, you can try to templatize it, meaning that you can try to zoom out and kind of see what's happening more broadly in this example. Like this, I, I talk about how I learned this approach in graduate school when I had to write academic journal articles And so I'd read the articles of a particular writer whose work I admired over and over and over again, all the different articles that he published. And what I found that was was that there was a pattern in his work where he would start his articles with some kind of jarring or eye-opening fact. From there, he would transition to raising this question about like, well, does this mean this or this? Then he would do a literature review and then he would present his thesis. That's a little in the weeds uh, unless you're writing academic journal articles, but that same approach is applicable to TED Talks or to decks or to proposals. You can do that with almost any work where you, you can zoom out and figure out what's the structure here and then turn that into a template for yourself. So in the case of the academic journal article, I could start off by saying, hey, what's my jarring fact? Then what question does this raise for me? Then what articles am I going to put into the academic journal review? And then what is my thesis? So you could do that for anything. And now you've got a template to work off of. Now, in terms of the execution, the first step to getting better at anything is to develop a scoreboard for yourself. And when I talk about a scoreboard, what I mean is to identify key metrics that you need to execute on well in order to be successful. So it really is kind of like reverse engineering yourself in terms of like, what are the outcomes I need to achieve in order to be successful at this task? So in Decoding Greatness, I talk about how you can use this approach to give yourself a score or gamify writing emails. And so a well-written email might take the form of something like this, particularly if you're writing to a new client or a client whose relationship, who you're trying to build a relationship with, starting off the email, not with whatever it is you're, you need to ask them to do, but starting off by bonding over some non-work-related task. Like, hey, did you, did you catch the, the Red Sox game last night? I couldn't believe that, blah, blah, blah. Whatever it is that you have a connection on, then moving towards asking for the thing you need to ask for, then explaining why it's helpful to them that they do what you've asked them to do. And finally, the last step is talking about some other non-work related things. So now you have the email kind of like sandwiched in in more relationship building activities. Let's say that that's how you want to approach. Let's say you agree and you you say, yes, that's how I want to write my client emails. Now, what you would need to do is identify those four elements. And again, we talked about what they are and give yourself a score and how well you executed each one of those elements from, let's say, one to 10. And if you score a 10, 9, 2, 
And 10, you know exactly what element you need to fix to get better. So that's how using a scoreboard can help you improve. I love the idea of gamifying activities like that because it does, it gives you a really simple structure to follow and leaves you without the guesswork. And and that was something, again, early on when we were pitching guests to come on the show, like it was like, it was just constantly rewriting some variation to like, hey, you know, saw this and would love to have you on the show to like, having a simple structure, like literally, I think now we have it broken down to five elements that we teach people and it becomes a routine where, you know, like I'm going to hit this paragraph, I'm going to hit this sentence, this in the right way. And again, it might be a lot of work in the beginning to figure out what that is, but once it's there, it makes everything a lot easier, you know, moving forward. Yeah. And that's also a good example of A-B testing a lot of different pitches. And um, I talk about that in the Coney Greatness where businesses will A-B test their approaches and we could all A-B test and we don't do enough of it. And uh, in pitching new uh, podcast guests, what you could do is see, okay, if I, you know, turn the talk about previous guests to a 10 versus if I dial it down to a two, which one gets the best reaction? Mm. Now, once you identify the one winning pitch, you can use it with everyone. And that's, I've put together online summits and that's what I did where at the beginning, I I would kind of like drastically play with the invitation until I got a yes. And once I got a yes, I just kept sending that invitation to everyone and it worked magically. I mean, like it was the same with getting uh, an agent. Uh, so it's really just anytime you're trying to do something that's a little bit out of your comfort zone, play around with it. Don't just use one approach and all whatever you whatever you do, don't send 20 invitations at once because then you rob yourself of that opportunity to A-B test. Right. Absolutely. Well, you, you've talked through some of the practical steps you can do this with, but the show is obviously called Build Your Network. And so relationships are a big thing that we talk about on this show. So Obviously, it's great to be able to examine things from a distance, emails, funnels, you know, people's presentations. What role do you think personal relationships with great people plays in learning how to become great yourself? Well, there's no question that you're going to meet a lot of people who are experts in their field, and then you're going to need to understand how it is they got there. So in, in this kind of thing makes me think about the, the last chapter in the book, which is about how to speak to experts. So there's an assumption that when you talk to someone who has achieved a massive level of success, that they're going to know right off, right out of the gate, what it is that made them successful and that be, and then be able to relate to you what that magic, magical thing was. But often experts are terrible teachers. And it's because of the curse of knowledge. And if you're not familiar with the curse of knowledge, it's the idea that knowing something makes it impossible to imagine not knowing it. Mm. And so experts often talk over the heads of novices because they can't help it. They don't even realize they're doing it. And I talk in Decoding Greatness about how when you go into a Home Depot and you talk to someone there and they're using terms you've never even heard, that's because their expertise is getting in the way of them communicating with you. And so what you need to come prepared with is a set of questions that allow the expert to look like they, uh, allow them to show off a little bit. And you want to uh, shrink your ego and adopt a mindset of naive curiosity because the more you let them feel like they're contributing to your success, the more they'll open up. And it also helps to come prepared with a few questions. And one of those, I talk about three different categories of questions that can be helpful. And one of those categories are discovery questions. So asking them about their journey in a way that uh, invites them to compare their initial expectations against their actual experiences. And hmm. by, by, for example, saying, hey, what, what, what did you focus on at the beginning that ended up not being very important? And that's a great example of a question that can get an expert to share some useful insight with you that you may not be 
um, necessarily aware of just yet. So that, that is one approach to using the folks you network with in the best possible way to elevate your success is by asking them the sorts of questions that allow an expert to communicate their insights without relying on them to know what it is that made them successful. Right. Well, it sounds like you're, it sounds like you're saying to let them know where they can bring the value, like where they can start and kind of coming to them with a pre-prepared saying like, I need help in this area specifically Mm -hmm. versus what I see a lot of people do. And I've been guilty of this before is going to saying, will you help me? Or will you mentor me? Or will you show me how you did this? Yeah, don't ever ask anybody to mentor you. Nobody wants to hear that. It's a very uncomfortable question. But you know what does help is I'd love your advice. Mm. And because it indicates that you you value their opinion. And uh, also there's research showing that if you ask somebody for feedback versus asking them for advice, you will get much better input by asking for advice. And it's because when you ask somebody for their feedback, typically they're comparing your current performance to your past performance, which leads them to say it's good, meaning you've improved. But if you ask them for advice, then they're comparing your current performance against what it could potentially be in the future. And that leads to a lot more ideas and suggestions. In fact, in some cases, it's somewhere like 50% more according to a Harvard Business Review study. So Harvard Business School, rather. So the point is, is that couching your request in the form of advice can actually be really valuable. And people really love to be asked for advice because it, it, it just puts them on the pedestal and makes them feel like you recognize their expertise. I'm curious because obviously you're a psychologist, so you can kind of speak into this. It's, it's amazing how changing one word can change the response that you get. And one thing too that I've noticed with a lot of people is that when you ask them, and I've noticed this for me, like I'll ask somebody a question and I, I will feel like they're couching what they really want to say so as not to hurt my feelings, even if I'm asking them like, hey, tell me honestly, what do you think about this? Is is that the best way to ask somebody to give you honest critiques or honest advice? Because a lot of times, especially with somebody who doesn't know you very well, they're going to play a little bit of the, I'm going to be nice to you. I'm going to, I'm going to couch this in and not really get to the meat of what you need to change. So how can you, as an asker, get someone to give you completely honest kind of ungated feedback? So this is, um, a topic I, I uh, address in, in the last chapter of the book on how to train people around you to give you good feedback. Because mm-hmm. as you point out, in many cases, you will get sugar-coated feedback, which isn't helpful because people prefer, you know, given a choice of giving somebody honest feedback and saving the relationship, most people would prefer to save the relationship. So your job as the asker is to frame the question in a way that points people to things that you perceive as falling short. That's one, one idea is be really specific in your question. So don't just say, hey, what do you think of this memo? Or what do you think of this email? Say, do you think this email, the opening in this email is engaging enough? Now you've given them a lot of specificity and they can actually tell you what they think. Because part of the difficulty of providing feedback is you don't know where to start. But if you give people the specificity, that that you particularly for things that you think are lacking that could be helpful the other thing i would suggest is to make it easy for them to give you negative feedback because that's what you need in order to improve right positive feedback doesn't help you improve negative feedback helps you improve so uh there's a great uh, a story in, in the book about mike Berbiglia and when he does his performance for friends and he wants their feedback he doesn't say hey what did you think of this he says when were you bored mm. so he's not asking if you were bored, he's asking, when were you bored? 
And that allows people, it gives them the ability to say what they think without hurting his feeling because of the way the question was phrased. Yeah, I love the I love the answer about specificity. That's that's super actionable. And it and it is again, it's just phrasing it exactly what you're wanting to, and you're giving them guidance on how to help versus asking, you know, how was that, which is always going to be, oh, it was great. You were great. <laughs> and you know, I think a lot of it is that people are afraid to hear the negative feedback. And so mm-hmm. they deliberately sabotage the question, right? Yeah. So they ask it in a way, was that okay? Right? Like that question like just screams for reassurance and yeah. that's not going to help you improve. So you have to make a decision. Do you want to be reassured or do you want to improve? If you're interested in being in improving, then use some of the strategies we talked about. Yeah, that's interesting. And it, it it's interesting even that the sabotaging, like how much of that is subliminal. Like we don't want to hear it. So we just speak it in a way that that gives us the answer that we want. Yes. Um, and, and which is, and also speaks to the fact that you should be uh, careful about who you ask. Like if you know someone is just going to give you positive feedback all the time, that's oh. probably not a good person to ask. You need yeah. to have somebody that you trust because they'll be open with you. But at the, by the same token, there are people who hate everything. So don't go to them either because their radar is broken. <laughs> so you want someone who you can trust because you've seen their opinions help others before and you can ask them. And also you also want to make sure that you want, you have more than one person. This is kind of like uh, polling. There's going to be noise when you speak to any particular person. They're going to have their own opinions that are going to uh, influence what they think of your work. And so mm-hmm. by gathering multiple points of view and looking at the overlapping commentaries, meaning that if three or four people point to the same thing, then you know you have an issue. If one person out of 10 points it out and you don't agree, you can ignore it. Right. Yeah. And also that's where it comes into talking to experts too. That's one of the best piece of advices I got, or best piece of advice I got from uh, one of my first mentors was uh, he was, I, I was doing videography work and he was like, it doesn't matter if your mom says that your videography work looks good. Like what do other <laughs> videographers say? Or what do people who've worked in this industry? Cause like they're going to actually see where there can be improvement and where there's areas you could be doing better. Like the people that love you and are supportive of you are great, but what do the people that are actually experts in that field have to say about your work? Yeah. And I can tell you that probably the most gratifying thing as a writer is when other writers email you to say, Hey, that was great. Mm. Because then it's, you know, someone who's an expert who uh, does the same thing as you. And so you wouldn't be careful about who it is that you pull for your input. Uh, And a lot of times it's people who are not very valuable as uh, a source of information, unfortunately. Well, I got to ask you this question. We ask everybody that comes on the show this exact question, and I'm curious to hear your feedback. Do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why? I'm going to give you a a, um, (laughs) political answer. (laughs) That is that what you know will help contribute to the quality of your work and who you know will contribute to the commercial success of that work. Hmm. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, So I think a lot of people confuse commercial success with quality work, and it's not the case. I mean, there are a lot of very successful movies, very successful um, musicians, very successful books that don't necessarily contribute much more than their competitors, but they happen to have the right pathway to reaching more people and for whatever reason became more of a success. And so I think in many cases, we look at the commercial successes and we say, oh, that's the mark of greatness because that was so successful, that must be amazing. And by the same token, we ignore 
comparable works that didn't achieve that same level of commercial commercial success. And so I just think that we need to be a little bit more sensitive to what we what we as individuals find to be impactful and use that as our radar rather than sheer success. And in terms of network, I mean, network is obviously the way to meeting great people. I can tell you, it's interesting from personal experience now with this book, a lot of getting on podcasts is being introduced to the podcast host. No. Huge amount, huge amount. And most podcast hosts, unlike yourself, Eric, will not read your book. So you could have a great book and it doesn't matter because the podcast hosts are not going to read your book. So what matters is the connections in terms of the commercial success of reaching the broadest popular audience. Mm -hmm. So does that make sense? So the, the work, it's like I could write a really bad book, but know a lot of hosts and probably achieve more success than if I had written a really good book, but didn't know those hosts. Right. What, what percentage would you say you devote to both that in that case? Because you obviously want to be at the top of your game and like putting out good work, but you also want to spend time developing the relationships to get on podcasts or to yeah. do a book tour. So what, I guess, percentage or breakup of time would you devote to those activities? In an ideal world or in my particular case? Well, let's talk your particular case. I'm a horrible networker. So that is not because I, I just, I feel like my time is better spent creating something useful for other people. Mm. And I feel like just connecting for the sake of connecting, I don't know, it, it bores me a little bit, but yeah. I'd be a lot more successful if I did that better. I can sure. appreciate that. And maybe so selfish, like I'm doing well enough. I'm happy with it. I'm just going to continue doing my work. And I feel like uh, in many cases, the, uh, it's interesting because I, I work in, uh, I work with a lot of organizational clients, but I also have a lot of friends in the online world. And in the online world, what I find is that most people who are really successful in that on online world will be like, if we're talking about like the breakdown, it's like 95% networking and 5% yeah. content creation, because you can always hire somebody else to do the content creation for you, but mm -hmm. you can't hire somebody to network for you. So I think that is a, when you look at the folks who are earning at the highest levels, the rainmakers, they're, they've really optimized for networking. That's not me. I'm comfortable with that. And I, you know, I feel like if I do meet people, they tend to like me. I do well with that, but I don't make it a focus of like trying to curry favor. It's not something that I enjoy Got it. for better or worse. Well, cool. No, I think that's a really, that's a really interesting answer. Um, and it's been a, it, it's different. It's one of the, it's one of the first times I feel like I've gotten an answer like that to that question. Cause I've had people that say, oh, it's what, you know, and obviously the majority of, of our guests are going who, you know, um, but I think it's interesting talking the conversation of quality of, of, and what success looks like for you, like individualizing success for yourself and defining it. Yes. And it comes back to the scoreboard principle, which is what we talked mm -hmm. about earlier, which is like, what are you optimizing for? And I'm optimizing for legacy. I'm not optimizing for financial success in the short term. And so I'd rather write a really good book that sells for years and years and years, as opposed to spending all my time networking, hiring a ghostwriter, having a book that pops on week one and then disappears. Right, right. Well, look, as we kind of wrap up, I want to move us into our random rounds. So we're going to ask you some random questions with some Fantastic. really quick answers here. First off, what profession other than your own do you think it'd be fun to attempt? How long do you have? I'm, <laughs> I'm always uh, interested in other things. I um, Novel writing, movie writing, comedy writing, uh, music. I was going to guess okay. music based on your uh, your early story. You know, music, the music industry has changed so much that I don't even think I'd want to do that anymore. Like the way you make money in, as a musician now is you have to tour all the time. And I 
that's not my thing. So uh, it used to be like you write a great album and then people buy your CDs, but nobody's buying CDs now. And Spotify pays you penny on uh, for every time people play. So music industry, sad. Hmm. Sad what's happened because I think the real, we're losing some really talented artists who don't want to tour. Right. If you could sit on a park bench with anybody past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? <laughs> I feel like this is an answer I should have, that's a question I should have anticipated. Anyone, I think I would, I, I'm going to say two people, which is my, uh, four people rather, my grandparents, all four mm-hmm. of them who, who are no longer here. Because when you're a kid, you're an idiot and <laughs> you don't know, you don't appreciate that your grandparents have wisdom and you don't oh. ask them the questions you should have asked them. And by the time you realize that it's too late. Right. What, what would be the first question out of your mouth? Where have you been? <laughs> How'd you get here? <laughs> right. How did uh, we all end up here on this podcast? <laughs> what are we doing here? I, you know, that's a good question. I don't know that I, I can, one of the things you learn as a focus group moderator is you don't go to the most important question first. You have mm. to build up to it to build comfort. So I would not ask the most, most critical question first, but I'd want to hear more about their backgrounds and their family. Cause I know nothing about my family before them. Just a quick aside, but they, they all, Four of them were in the Holocaust, and so um, wow. lost huge, significant parts of the family. I know nothing about the family before them. I would love to know more. Okay, how do you like to learn best? Is it books, blogs, podcasts, or videos? Hundred percent books. Books are completely underrated. I feel like it is getting harder and harder to convince people to read books. You know, I, I'm now on a week one of a of a book tour, and it is tough to convince somebody. It's like here. Go sit down for eight hours. Enjoy and pay me twenty five bucks to go sit down. And uh, it's but the truth is that so many of the insights come not from the book, but in spending the time and just focusing on one thing and letting your mind wander mm-hmm. around it. And I new ideas are coming. And you don't get that from watching a movie. You don't get that from I don't think from an audio book. But I think you do get that while reading. And uh, one of the tragedies of go- of uh, preparing for a book launch is you don't get to read books. And I haven't read very much this year. And I am someone who reads like 100 to 200 books a year, have not had a chance to read very many books this year. And I feel it. It's impacting my creativity, my thinking. And so without a doubt, reading books is is, is the way to go if you're looking to gener- be more generative. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. Are you paperback specifically? Or do you like Kindle like- or... Yeah, I, I write all over my books. I'm always collecting, right, uh, words, but also ideas. And sometimes if, you know, when I'm, so I've got all these books behind me, but a lot more at home. And uh, when the time comes for me to write a book, I will go through all the books and look at all of the things I've underlined. And not just to, to pick out those particular ideas, but because I use them as prompts for new ideas. And you can't do that when you don't have books. Right. 100%. I don't know how you're supposed to write. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I stopped after we had our daughter, like I kind of kicked, same thing, it pushed me off of reading for like, I mean, two or three years and I got back into reading last year and I was like, oh, this is why I've been so dumb the last three years. I've been, <laughs> I put down the exercise because I was reading, you know, not at all the level you were, but I was reading 30, 40 books a year, like reading a good amount and I'm back on track to be doing that again. And it's been, it's like, it changes how you think about everything because you've got so much knowledge in the background. And it makes you more patient. And there's a lot to be said for reading novels. I don't know if that's part of your regimen, but reading novels helps you understand where other people are coming from a lot better. It Mm. increases your emotional intelligence. So I think a lot of folks 
uh, dismiss fiction writing as like, I can just watch a movie if I want to write, yeah. read fiction. But, you know, obviously not all fiction, literary fiction in particular. And it doesn't have to be like one of these obscure books where nothing's happening. Like there's a lot, there's a wide range of novels out there where there's sufficient action happening, but also gives you insight into the other person's thinking process. And yeah. you don't necessarily get that from nonfiction. Yeah, I've always struggled with fiction and that was one of my goals this year. And I still haven't done it because I've been pushing it off because I struggle. I really do struggle to get into fiction. Um, I love reading biographies uh, the most and I love reading historical or, or books on religion, things like that. But but fictional, but like I have a Stephen King book on my shelf that I'm like, I know I love horror. I can get through this, but it's 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 a lot mentally to get me into that mindset. So it's uh, when you're done with that, Stephen cool. King, you might want to check out Joe Hill. Uh, Joe Hill is his son. Yeah. And uh, he's a phenomenal writer and I think better writer. Hmm. So he's uh, someone who's really easy to read. There's a hot take. Joe Hill, better writer <laughs> than his father. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. My morning routine is boring, but I, you know, I, I walk my dogs and I uh, make avocado and eggs, espresso, and listen to a podcast on the way to work. That's it. Uh, but I, I, the afternoon is when I do the exercise. I don't do it in the mornings. Gotcha. What's your go-to pump-up song? <laughs> You've definitely not gotten this this answer before. It's going the distance from Rocky. Okay, cool. That's a good go-to. Do you drink your raw eggs with the uh, avocado <laughs> and they go for your run? No, that's awesome. What is something that you are not very good at? Oh, man. Again, how much time do you have? Networking, right? There's one. You talked about that one. Not very good at cleaning the house. And, um, but I'm, you know what I, I'm, I have gotten really good at is identifying things I don't like and then paying somebody else to do them. Gotcha. <laughs> so uh, that, that is the perfect way to not answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> what is the best place online to connect with you? Um, well, if you're interested more in, in learning more about decoding greatness, the best place to go is decodinggreatnessbook.com. You get a free course on how to reverse engineer in your field. You just have to buy the book on Amazon or wherever and send us your receipt. And if you're interested in learning about me, it's ronfriedmanphd.com. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. And uh, I really appreciate all the value laid out. And definitely everybody, go pick up a copy of Decoding Greatness right now. There's a link in the show notes. And if you put it off, you will forget to order the book later. So just go ahead and buy the book have it shipped to you, and it'll be a nice surprise in a couple days. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today, we talk brainstorms with UX designer Brian. Let's go. First question. You thought you'd see everyone's idea in the team brainstorm, but you've got a grand total of one. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board, right? Because in Miro, the team can add ideas now or later. And with privacy mode, we can keep them anonymous until they're good to share. Correct. Next, you need the best way to explain your idea, but all you have is a few sticky notes. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, because, you know, in Miro, I could record videos, add text, images, links, and digital sticky notes, of course, present my thoughts the way I want. Right again! Now, you're looking for a past idea you thought was just genius. Only you could find... Oh, there it is. Drawing board or... Miro. Our finished and unfinished work lives in one place. And he's one. Join over 60 million people getting ideas noticed in Miro Brainstorms. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.